0: Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated.
2: This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda. And this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I remember one photo
1: was a woman in profile kind of walking on a sidewalk in the background of someone else's photo. And I didn't think it was me at first until... I saw the jacket, I kind of focused on the jacket I was wearing, and it was from an American vintage store in Tokyo that is a very distinctive jacket that I've never seen anyone else wearing. And I said, wow, that's that's me, even though I can't even recognize myself in that photo or remember where I was walking. It's kind of incredible what the, the technology is capable of now in terms of when it can recognize you in a photo.
2: That's Kashmir Hill. She's a reporter for the New York Times who's been exploring how technology that has become indispensable is also eroding our privacy. When she was last on Clear and Vivid a year or so ago, she mentioned a story she had broken in early 2020. It was about an obscure startup that had created an app that could end privacy as we know it. She's back to tell us more about that company and the book she's written about it with the disturbing title, Your Face Belongs to Us. Thank you so much for coming back on the show.
1: Oh, thanks for having me back, Alan.
2: You seem like such a nice person, but you write really scary books.
1: It's true. It is true. It's not a heartwarming
2: tale. And this one called Your Face Belongs to Us, that title is scary enough. Then you get into the book, you find out it's not just your face. It's pretty much everything that's possible to know about you belongs to them. Who is them? Is it just this one company, Clearview, or or, or are there a bunch of them now?
1: So Clearview AI is kind of my entry into the book, this New York-based company that scraped billions of photos from the web of people to build a facial recognition app um, for police. But I did purposefully make the title vague because there are many of them that are collecting your face.
2: Does it just give you other photos or does it give you information?
1: Well, it gives you links to where the photos appear. So it's very easy to go from the photo to a person's name, um, a person's social media account. Address,
2: home address. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's pretty easy to go from someone's face these days to much more information about them.
2: Mm. The book starts with a, a wonderful detective story on your part, trying to track down Clearview. And it starts with the tip. Can you say anything about who the tip came from?
1: I can. Yeah. So the tip came from a public records researcher named Freddie Martinez, and he works for a nonprofit in D.C. where this is his job. He's trying to reduce the amount of government secrecy that's out there. And so he's very devoted to figuring out what technologies and tools the police are using. And so he had done a public records request to a bunch of police agencies around the country asking them about facial recognition and who they're using and how much they're paying for it. And he got this one 26-page PDF from the Atlanta Police Department and it mentioned this company Clearview AI which was saying it was basically a Google for faces and there was a legal memo marked privileged and confidential written by Paul Clement the former solicitor general of the United States and he was explaining to I guess a police department why it wasn't why it wasn't illegal to use Clearview AI.
2: <laughs> Everybody who seems to have touched this technology early on had to decide that it wasn't illegal. Everybody knew that there was a chance that it was.
1: You know, at first this company was secret and it was it was hard to track down the people behind it and get them to talk to me um, because I think what they were doing was so taboo and they knew it would be shocking to society.
2: It was fascinating to see that they were so concerned about staying undercover, that you couldn't even track them down to an address. They didn't seem to have a place that was their headquarters. Every time you'd go someplace, you'd find out the, the address didn't exist.
1: They had a website, Clearview AI, Clearview.ai, and it didn't have much information, but it did have it just said, uh, artificial intelligence for a better world. And there was an <laughs> Depending address. Depending on whose definition. And there was an address. that I, When I mapped it, it was only a few blocks away from the New York Times. So I decided just to walk over. Yeah. And when I got to where it was supposed to be, it just wasn't there. There was no building with that address. And huh. uh, that was the first moment where I thought, something's not right with this company.
2: Finally, you you were going down the stairs in a building that looked like it might be the address, and two guys were coming up. How did you manage to nail them?
1: <laughs> so I had um, I had tried to track down anyone I could find that was connected, that seemed to be connected to Clearview AI. Uh, no one would return my phone calls. One person who was connected was Peter Thiel, a pretty well-known investor who founded PayPal, early investor in Facebook, one of the most successful investors around but also very controversial. Uh, he didn't respond, but there was another investment firm I found linked to Clearview AI and they were they were right in Bronxville, which is a train ride away from New York um city, so I hopped on the train, I went to the office, I got there. I knocked on the door. There was no one there. I talked to their neighbors. They said, oh, they never come in. They're never here. <laughs> <laughs> a delivery man came with some kind of what looked like a gift package. And he said, yeah, they're never here. The packages sit here for days. And so I was disappointed because I thought that was my chance to finally meet somebody connected to Clearview AI. I, I basically sat in the hallway for about an hour And then finally decide to leave and go back to Manhattan. And as I'm coming down the stairs, these two men walk in and they just had the look of money about them. (laughs) And, (laughs) uh, you know, lavender shirts, pink ties. And I said, hey, are you with Kiranaga Partners, the name of this firm? And they looked up at me and smiled and said, Yeah, who are you? And I said, I'm the New York Times reporter who's been trying to talk to you. And their faces just fell. And they said, Well, our Clearview's lawyer said, We're not supposed to talk to you. But um, I was very I was pregnant at the time, so I kind of deployed my large belly for sympathy. And they invited me in to have some water and talk off the record. And then they were so excited about Clearview AI that they decided to, um, decide to talk to me on the record to tell me what a good investment they thought it was and how it was going to change the world.
2: So through that meeting that you met Juan Tontat, am I saying his name right?
1: That was the meeting where I found out his name. Yeah, I had been trying to figure out who is the technologist who came up with this you know, radical new face-searching app. Uh, I couldn't find his name anywhere affiliated. And in that meeting, the investors told me, yes, there's this computer genius that helped make this tool, and his name is Juan Tan Tat." And they wrote it. I said, "How do you spell that?" And the uh, David Scalzo, who runs Karnaga Partners, wrote it up on the whiteboard for me. And he said, "Yeah, he's brilliant. He's descended from Vietnamese royalty. And uh, he has a little bit of Gawker history that he's he's a bit embarrassed about. That he doesn't want to come out, And it's part of why he's been so secretive. Um, and I had found somebody affiliated with a company called John Good on LinkedIn which it sounded to me like a fake name. They said, yes, that's the name he goes by uh, oh, on LinkedIn. Oh. <laughs> yes, so it was, it was quite the web that had been spun around Clearview to kind of keep the, the people involved in the shadows.
2: So what I don't get is you seem to have had a strange relationship with ton Tutt. When you finally met with him, you wrote about him, right? Or you wrote the story before you met him?
1: Yeah. So once I'd met with the investors, um, at that point, the company, they thought that I would go away if they didn't talk to me. Um, But meanwhile, I was reaching out to police officers who'd use the app. I just was clearly doing enough reporting that they realized the story was coming and they decided to engage with me. And so they hired a crisis communications consultant and she called me and said, you know, I want to arrange an interview with somebody. I think you'll find him really interesting. And I, I said, you know, I, I had emailed Juan Tontat at that point because I knew his name. And I said, is it Juan Tontat? She goes, I don't want to tell you too much right now. <laughs> um but he uh, right after the new year's um right before the pandemic in January 2020 we met at a WeWork work and spent a few hours talking and you know he was he was i would come to find later through all my reporting that he was evasive and maybe deceptive about a few things um but he's a really strange character he's a really strange person he is very open in some ways and really has has spent a lot of time since since then with me, um, cooperated with the book, would answer my questions, was evasive about some parts of his history, um, which he really doesn't want, you know, uh, to be the uh, the thing that is best known about him, which is an interest in kind of discredited sciences about what can be gleaned from the face, you know, hmm. the, the, the idea that you can, tell from someone's face, whether they're a criminal, whether how intelligent they are, whether they might be, uh, you know, a drug abuser or a cheater, just just the kind of things that come out of Victorian age kind of race science. And then, you know, he was very affiliated with far-right characters, um, very conservative politics in that part of his history, Um, and one of his co-founders, or early, early, Collaborators, Charles Johnson, who is a really controversial far right persona online, he just didn't want to talk about those things. But other things he would be really open about. So it's it was kind of challenging as a reporter to balance those two sides of him.
2: What I found strange was he seemed, from your account, that he was proud of Clearview and wanted to promote what he thought were the good aspects of it. And yet here you were bringing to the attention of the world through the New York Times, that these were questionable, possibly illegal activities. And he wasn't worried about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, Juan Tanta is a person who, he, so he's grew up in Australia, uh, dropped out of college at 19 years old, moved to Silicon Valley, tried for years to develop an app that would kind of go big, go viral. He did Facebook games when Facebook was big and iPhone games when the iPhone came along. And I got the impression he was always kind of looking for the thing that was going to make him famous, that was going to make Mm. him, you know, have a name as famous as Mark Zuckerberg or Steve Jobs. And he kind of stumbled upon a face recognition app. They called it Smart Checker at first and then Clearview AI. And he's proud of it. He's proud of building it. You know, at first the company kind of didn't know what to do with what they had. They were just trying to figure out a market for it, and they were going to retailers and um, residential buildings and commercial real estate and uh, basically saying, hey, you can use this to keep out the bad guys. Uh, And eventually they brought it to police, and police loved it. It worked better than any kind of face recognition tool they'd worked with before. And I think he was just happy that he finally found devoted users. Uh, and honestly, I, I don't think he had really spent a lot of time contemplating the meaning of, of what mm. he had done and this taboo he had broken. Um, he was just kind of looking to, to succeed.
2: You mentioned scraping before. Scraping the web—how does that work?
1: So, um, so this is kind of one of the the big accomplishments of what Clearview I did is that they went out and essentially downloaded lots of photos from from the web, from lots of different sites, from social media sites. The first big um, site that Juan Tantat talked about scraping was Venmo, um, the financial services app. And Venmo, uh, back when he first started doing this, had this had this page that showed real people's transactions happening in real time. So it would be like Cashmere paid Allen, you know, for lunch, and it would have both of our photos there from our Venmo accounts, huh. and he was able to just create a. Um, a bit of code that would just automatically download the photos that appeared there along with the usernames associated with them and a link to the Venmo account. And so if you and I had a transaction, it appeared on that page and it was a public transaction. It would download both of our photos with a link to our Venmo account and then he would put it into the face recognition app. He just essentially did that for a lot of different sites out there for... I mean, thousands, maybe millions of sites. And now Clearview AI has 30 billion photos. Of, of people. And since, you know, there's many fewer billions uh, people in the world, that means many photos of, of each person. So the scraping is the collection of the photos. So this is, they have kind of special software that goes from site to site that looks to download new photos. And then what they've built on top of that database of photos is this facial recognition app. And so when you upload a face, it's able to pull back every time it's seen that, so it might reveal their Venmo account, their Instagram page, um, their their photo on an employer's website, um, or you know their OnlyFans account. Uh, yeah, it can it can be quite revealing. I with Juan Tantat, um I he would run he would run Clearview searches on me every once in a while when we would meet for interviews, and it was it was often astounding what would come up. I remember. One photo was a woman um, in profile kind of walking on a sidewalk in the background of someone else's photo. In the background? In the background. And I didn't think it was me at first until... I saw the jacket, I kind of focused on the jacket I was wearing and it was from a, an American vintage store in Tokyo <laughs> that is a very distinctive jacket that I've never seen anyone else wearing. And I said, wow, that's, that's me, even though I can't even recognize myself in that wow. photo or remember where I was walking. Um, so it just was, it's, it's kind of incredible what the, the technology is capable of now in terms of when it can recognize you in a photo.
2: So in order to store all these photos up to 30 billion they needed money to pay for that storage. Is that when Teal came in Peter Teal?
1: Peter Teal was their very first investor. He ended up putting in $200,000 and yeah that that let them keep going and they eventually um you know I think as of now they have something like 30 million dollars that's been invested. But yeah it is expensive to store all those photos. And But more expensive is kind of the legal pushback that they've gotten. They have, uh, yeah. they've had massive fines levied in Europe. They are fighting uh, a big lawsuit here in Illinois. It's been expensive for them.
2: But I remember reading in the book that their plan was to hold off the lawsuits with technical ploys long enough to get more investments to pay for the suits so they could stay in business. Is that, do I have that right?
1: Yeah, they settled one lawsuit that was filed by the ACLU in Illinois and no money was changed hands. They did have to, they had to pay the ACLU's legal bills, but they did agree that they wouldn't sell their kind of huge database of photos to private companies, that they would only work with law enforcement. That was one of the major kind of concessions in the lawsuit. But they do still face, yeah, uh, lawsuits that could prove very expensive. But lawsuits move so slowly. Uh, what's really striking to me is that you know a, a, a lot of a lot of European countries, uh, Italy, France, the UK, have levied significant fines of twenty million euros, uh, which is the maximum they can do under the European privacy law there, and. Clearview just hasn't paid them. Um, And so they're appealing them. They're just kind of trying to put Mm. off the big payday. Mm. And so far, it's been working. But yeah, I don't know if at some point a really big payment is going to come due and what Clearview will do at that point uh, if they can't get more investors.
2: You mentioned the ACL lawsuit just now, which reminds me of how ambivalent Twantat was. He knew you had information that would be published Not to his advantage, and yet he invites you to a meeting with his lawyer discussing the ACLU case. Why why would he do that?
1: As a journalist, I'm always happy when somebody gives me access to any kind of private moment. In that case, he was having a meeting with Floyd Abrams, who's very famous attorney um, for his First Amendment work. You know, he represented the New York Times when um, when it was prohibited from publishing the Pentagon Papers by the government uh, in the '60s. And yeah, I, he invited me to come to the, a legal strategy meeting, which was definitely surprising to me. Um, they knew I was working on a magazine article at that point for the New York Times. You know, I think that this is always a calculation, right? For any company that's getting sig- significant media attention, you can either do what Elon Musk is doing right now with twitter.com slash x.com where they just don't talk to the media. Like when the media tries to ask them questions for a long time, if you emailed Twitter communications, you would just get a poop emoji in return. (laughs) Um,
2: (laughs) A simple no will be sufficient.
1: (laughs) You know, or you can talk to the media and try to plead your case. And, you know, clearly Juan Tontat and Clearview AI felt like they had a sympathetic story to tell. And so they were willing to talk to me. And, You know, I I always try to write fairly. I'm not out there just to do hit pieces. Um, And so I appreciate that they're willing to give me information. I still think that what they're doing is um, hard to wrap my head around, kind of the history of the company, that it's really controversial and kind of will significantly change kind of how we all move we who have less famous faces than you, how we kind of navigate, you know, public space. I'm
2: scared of it too, don't worry. (laughs) When we come back from our break, Kashmir Hill tells me that while face recognition apps like Clearview AI have features that even she would find useful, they've already led to alarming hints of what she calls a dystopian future, This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is to stimulate scientific research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, to strengthen the relationship between science and society, and to honor scientific discoveries with the Kavli Prize.
0: When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice.
2: This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Kashmir Hill. What are some of the really terrible things that can go wrong? Things that can happen to innocent people because of technology like this?
1: So I think there's good things that could come, right? Like, I would use this tool if I had access to it for investigative reporting. You know, you could imagine something happened, and there's a photo from the scene, and you could... uh, find out who was there, you know, and contact them and say, can you tell me more about this thing that happened? Mm. You know, you could use it to, if you're in a bar and somebody is talking to you and, you know, they seem great, you might take a little photo <laughs> and find out who they are and say, oh, yeah, this, this is a person I'd like to get to know better. Or, you know, news reports came up about the felonies they committed and then maybe you uh, say, it's been a nice conversation, but you're going to go talk to somebody else. Um, like, the, I you can see clear, you know, positive use cases. On the flip side of that, you know, the person with the felonies might take your photo in the bar and find out your name and where you live. And even though you've never talked to them, they know how now have all this information about you that they could use. I I write about people all the time that um, kind of do horrible things to other people, like destroy their online reputation. And sometimes it happens just because of... A very brief interaction. So I've thought about people having this tool, and you know they're on the bus and somebody bumps them or you know cuts them in line, and you could just imagine this kind of brief and uh, rude encounter be- between strangers. And now they can know who that person is, and maybe, you know, carry this grudge online and write Hmm. horrible things about them. You could use this to find out, you see somebody walking out of a Planned Parenthood and you can quickly snap their photo and find out who they are. There are so many different kinds of ways that we are protected by anonymity as we move through the world. And this could just pierce it in ways that could be really harmful. Um, like you go to a protest in a restrictive country and they can immediately know who you are or things that are more trivial, like you're at dinner and you're having, uh, you know, a very gossipy conversation and somebody that's sitting next to you can snap your photo and then all of a sudden understand the context of that conversation and mm. you might reveal things that you didn't mean to reveal to a stranger sitting around you.
2: Had there been many cases of wrongful arrest,
1: Yes, um, there have been at least five cases, uh, confirmed cases of bad facial recognition matches that have led to people being arrested, spending time in jail um, in 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 one case, uh, two cases actually, for a full week. And you know, I do think that facial recognition can be a useful tool for for criminal investigations. The problem is that in these cases, the police really didn't do enough. Uh, investigating beyond the match. The match, they just kind of saw the match as they treat it with confirmation bias. And Mm. so everything else they found out about that person led them to suspect they were guilty rather than doing a true investigation. Um, And so that is a real concern.
2: Have there been attempts to make that better by training them not to give into it with confirmation bias?
1: Yeah, I went down to Miami Police Department um, for the story because I was talking to the chief of investigations there, an officer named Armando Aguilar. And he's really concerned about this. Like he doesn't want to see face recognition used wrongfully because he's afraid it's going to be taken away from the police. And so he has a small team that's allowed to use facial recognition technology to run these matches. They are supposed to have done, you know, special training to make sure that they're, using it correctly. um, It's actually a hard thing as a human to look at a bunch of doppelgangers and figure out which one is the right one. So supposedly the people doing that are better. But at the end of the day, they're producing a report that says, we think that your suspect is this person. And then they hand it to the investigators who are supposed to do, are supposed to go out and look for more evidence that really uh, supports probable cause. I don't know, it's just, it's hard with human beings. When a computer tells us something, we, tend, we can put too much trust in it, essentially. And so I think it's a valuable tool, but I think we have to be really careful about how it's deployed, or we're going to have many more cases of, of wrongful arrest based on it.
2: What's been happening since you wrote the book? Have there been any changes, more oversight, supervision, laws, coming down in more states more police using it fewer what what's been happening
1: there's been a lot of talk about doing something about it um, there haven't been a lot of changes yet kind of the most progress we've seen is on the state level where there's been, Real attention paid to how police are using it, um, but no, I think it's something people are thinking about. I think the pandemic has been a really real big dis- distraction from facial recognition technology, and I kind of think attention is starting to come back to the topic now. But there haven't been a lot of a lot of big changes yet. It is it is definitely widely used in in the in the country in um, Clearview I specifically says that the kind of media attention they've gotten has only increased in interest and that they've gotten kind of more users mm. since the company kind of came to, to public attention.
2: Do you think people are just like the, the lobster boiling in the pot, have had little, bit, little bits of privacy taken away and haven't tallied up how much has been taken away and what the damage could be if all of it goes
1: Yeah, you know, so I reported this story this year where um, lawyers who were going to Madison Square Garden, the big venue, uh, with concerts and shows and basketball games, the Knicks play there, the Rangers play there. That You had lawyers who were going there, and they would walk through the metal detector, and they would get stopped by security guards. Uh, and they would be told, you can't come in. You're not allowed here. You know, we we did a facial recognition scan, and we know that you're a lawyer at this firm that has sued our company. Mm. And no one from your firm is allowed to come to any of our events until the lawsuit is resolved. And this was happening to thousands of lawyers. There were like 100 firms that Madison Square Garden and James Dolan, the billionaire who owns it, um, had decided to ban because they were annoyed that they'd been sued. And these lawyers at first kind of didn't realize how radical this was. This was a real radical deployment of facial recognition to keep out people uh, because of the jobs that they worked. And I, I don't think the the lawyers didn't realize at first how on the cutting edge of dystopia they were, and so when I started talking to them, I said, you know, this isn't normal. This doesn't. Uh, this hasn't happened before, and so it can be hard to recognize when you're in the middle of 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 a real. A seismic shift in kind of information and privacy and in kind of societal control. And so, yeah, I do worry that people have all seen Minority Report already and they kind of assume that's how the world is. But it's not that way yet. You know, we, I do think we're at a point right now where we kind of, we do have some autonomy and could change how this technology is deployed and, and what's acceptable. Mm-hmm.
2: In the last chapter in the book, you have a conversation with Juan Tontat in which the question arises, does he have an idea of where this technology is going? What does he see for its future and for the future of the rest of us?
1: Juan Tontat is, you know, a classic entrepreneur who is a eternal optimist. I went for a visit with him at one point and he showed me a product the company was working on, which is these... Augmented reality glasses. um, And I got to try them out. And they're basically these glasses that you can wear. And when you look at a person, a little green circle appears around their face. And you can tap a touchpad on the glasses and it starts bringing up their photos and the captions on the photos. So very quickly reveals. The a person's identity, um, so I looked at him, and you know it said Juan Dantet, the founder of Clearview AI. I looked at his spokeswoman, um, and it brought up photos of her, including one with a client that she is not public about, um, and she asked me not to to repeat the name of the client in hmm. in in the book or in future reporting. And so it just kind of casually revealed how intrusive a search like this can be. Um, but yeah, I mean that's that's he thinks this is this is the future of the world. And that, we'll that, all go
2: around wearing these magic glasses.
1: Yeah, that you'll instantly know who people are. And and he does think that'll be a better world, that, you know, the more information you have, the better, that it'll stop bad actors. Yeah, I mean, he sees this as a very good thing. And of course he would, because he's the person selling that thing.
2: <laughs> yeah, the, the instantaneous element is something that, I find amazing. It's a little bit like going on chat GPT and you ask a complicated question and five seconds later it's spewing out a complicated answer. And then when you talked about lawyers being stopped as they pass through the turnstile, there's something about that speed that's eerie as well.
1: Yeah, and I've done some reporting at the Times on this is happening with shoplifters. You know, if your face comes up as somebody who has stolen from the store before, then you'll just be stopped and asked to leave right away. Um, I think it could get more dystopian that if you've written a negative review of a store on Yelp, ah. maybe you try to walk in and they say, you are not welcome here anymore. Um, and so that that's the kind of thing that I find chilling. Um, I actually just taught a class of teenagers about facial recognition technology. And they seemed a little blase about it. Um, And then I showed them this website, PimEyes, and how you can upload a photo of your face and pull up all these photos. And they started doing it. And one of them found a photo of when he was four years old at a daycare center. And another one found a photo of when he was nine petting a donkey somewhere. Um, one found a photo of her wrestling team that she did not know was online. And the students were really shocked. And these are teenagers who we all seem to believe don't care about privacy, but they they didn't like it. They didn't know that this was possible and they did find it very disturbing. Um, so so I don't think the cause is lost. I do, I do think it, it's still possible to kind of um, make decisions about what this looks like for us.
2: Well, your optimism is something I'm grateful for combined with how <laughs> scary you you can be and how much, how much your book scared me. But I'm glad to hear that there's still something that can be done and that there are people interested in doing something. So our time is coming to a close, but we always, as you know from your last visit, we always ask seven quick questions before we end the show. I don't remember what your answers were. Let's see if they're vastly (laughs) different. What do you wish you really understood?
1: I wish I really understood... Uh, this is like climate change (laughs) and, you know, I, I write a lot about kind of technological change and how scary it is or can be. Um, but I do feel like this larger problem that's looming is the climate and, and, and similar to technology, you know, how can we make choices and change the direction that it's heading? The climate really scares me, um, particularly for the future of
2: my children. Can't wait to hear what you come up with when you get your teeth into that. (laughs) How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong?
1: (sighs) I remember this one. Um, I say, are you sure about that? And what is your source?
2: Yeah. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you?
1: Um, the strangest question that anyone has ever asked me. Uh, I'm trying to think of a recent question because the the teenagers had all kinds of strange questions for me. Like what? Um, I think one of the what was just like, who's the most interesting person you've ever met?
2: Oh well, had you done our show already? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I was like, Alan, of course, you should definitely listen <laughs> to Clear and Vivid. It's an excellent podcast with a very interesting person who only interviews interesting people.
2: <laughs> <laughs> now now you got it. How do you stop a compulsive talker?
1: I am not one to butt in. Uh, I think I'm, this is going to be the same answer as last time, but compulsive talkers are so good for journalists, um, you know, like. People who will talk to me are the best people. Uh, And I I think a mistake you can make in journalism is thinking you know what you're looking for Mm. uh, in an interview. And you just never know where it's going to lead. And so I do try to look for those. What's the unexpected information here? And is this interesting?
2: Compulsive talkers tend to wander. Do you ever find them wandering into something that they would have rather kept quiet about?
1: Yes, definitely.
2: That's Interesting. Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you don't know. How do you strike up a real, authentic conversation?
1: Oh, you know, I was once at a dinner party um, at a wedding, and somebody came up with this question I loved, which was, "What was your first? What was your first memory?" Hmm. Huh. I just thought it was such a like interesting way into a conversation. And I, I love that question.
2: That's great. I never heard that before. That's good. Have you used it and gotten good answers? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Good. good. What gives you confidence?
1: Having as many of the facts as possible.
2: Okay. Last question. <laughs> what book changed your life?
1: Man, there's so there's so many. Um, I don't know if it, I would say it changed my life but it definitely changed my thinking. Um was super sad true love story by Gary Steingart um which was just one of the one of the greatest books I read that kind of captured how chilling it could be to to have the kind of technology widespread that I now write about. Um a lot but Yeah, this ability that you walk into a room and you immediately get a report on everybody there with kind of a score for uh, everything from credit to sexual prowess. And um, just the worry about us being in that society where, yeah, you're scored and people just assume they know everything about you. I just worry about how that would affect our kind of our freedom and our ability to be who we want to be.
2: Well, I'm going to say goodbye now because you got me scared again. Okay, sorry, Alan. <laughs> thanks so much, Kashmir. It's fun talking to you again.
1: Thank you for having me on to talk about the book.
2: This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring this episode. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science, for the benefit of humanity. Kashmir Hill is a technology reporter for the New York Times. Her new book, published today, is Your Face Belongs to Us, a secret of startups' quest to end privacy as we know it. Her website is KashmirHill.com. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohaney, And the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Joe Henrich. He looks at how culture has shaped our evolution. Not only expanding our brains, but also expanding our ability to cooperate, especially with those who are different.
0: What we're good at as humans is creating and establishing traditions, and we're slower at coming up with new ideas. But a fertile source of new ideas is someone who has a different set of traditions, a different perspectives, different approaches, different sets of skills. Not only are they good at generating novelty and, and innovations and stuff, but they make the people already living there better at those things too because of this recombinant process.
2: Joe Henrich and how our species has gone from being a relatively unremarkable primate a few million years ago to the most successful species on the globe. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.
0: When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice.